You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents Career Talk, a monthly program featuring information on career and academic planning sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. And now, here's your host, the Assistant Director of the Office of Career Advancement, Ruben Britt. Welcome to Career Talk. I'm your host, Ruben Britt. Sojourner Truth once said that truth is powerful and it prevails. Our guest today is an historian who has written about the truth. Joining us today is professor, author, and historian, Dr. Susan Rutherby. Welcome to Career Talk. Dr. Rutherby. Thanks for asking me to join you. I'm really honored. Now, can you tell our listeners about your career journey? Because it's it's very impressive. <laughs> well, I'm old enough. Um, so um, I'm living proof that you can be absolutely wrong about what you think you're going to do and change course. So my parents were both in the science field and thought that you should know from, I don't know, age whatever, that what you wanted to be when you grew up. So when I was 16, they actually gave me this pamphlet called, Should Your Son or Daughter Be a Personnel Administrator? What we would now probably call an HR, human resource person. So I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And I had a high breakage fee in my high school chemistry class. And my parents both described walking into laboratories as if they had just met God. And that just didn't happen to me. So I thought, well, this sounds interesting. So I only applied to industrial and labor relations schools as an undergraduate. And I ended up at Cornell because it was the cheapest one my parents could send me to because it was a state school and there were three other kids behind me. So I show up at Cornell in the early 60s in the industrial labor relations school at Cornell and realize about five minutes into it that, um, if you want to be a personnel minister, you have to work for management. And this is probably not a good idea for me, but I didn't know that, but my parents wouldn't let me switch into the art college because they would have had to pay back tuition. So I stuck it out, um, for three years, three years, most of which was excruciatingly boring, like nothing like taking corporate economics when your girlfriend's taking Shakespeare or, or, you know, psychology, um, and I skipped out my junior year and went to the London School of Economics and did and played around in London, which was really helpful. And then, you know, um, and I survived it by becoming friends with the historian who taught the labor history courses. And I just loved them. And he was really an intellectual. And I guess I thought I was one, but I didn't even know what those words meant at the time. So I ended up doing more work in labor history than anything else. But it was the 60s. And when I finished somehow going to graduate school was just out of the question. I was doing a lot of anti-war work. Um, and I ended up getting a job in New York. So I went to New York city and I got a job in New York working during what was called the struggle for the community control of the New York city public schools. There was an attempt to decentralize control of the New York schools. In any event, I was the secretary really for a, uh, a group called the parent development program. And it was, uh, made up of mothers mainly who were black Puerto Rican and Chinese American. And we were trying to take, run the school, local schools. And it was, um, it was, it was an amazing experience. I feel like I got really educated into the politics 
of race and education and kids. And um, then I tried to figure out what else I wanted to be when I grew up. So I applied, I thought about applying to both social work school and uh, elementary school education. And I got the applications for two different graduate programs in them. And I couldn't get past the name, rank, and serial number part. Like I could write my name and address, but I couldn't figure out why I wanted to do any of those things. Mm -hmm. So I finally decided what I really wanted to do was to work on white, white racism, which I was seeing enormous amounts of at that point in New York. And so I went back to graduate school in history and Amer in American studies at NYU. And for a variety of personal reasons, I dropped out. It took me four years to finish the job and in the, uh, the degree, the master's degree. But in between, um, I worked at a place called Health Pack, the Health Policy Advisory Center, which was a sort of lefty think tank on the politics of the healthcare system. And I wrote on women's health and on health workers as a labor historian. And then I realized I really needed to figure out what else I was going to do. And so I worked with two friends. We, we got, it's a really wonderful story. We convinced Tony Morrison, who was the editor, who was then an editor at Random House, okay. that we had this idea for a book <laughs> called America's Working Women, a Documentary History. So we could collect documents about the history of women's work. And the three of us, two other historians and me, convinced Tony to give us a contract. So she was our editor, and she was still trying to make a living as an editor before all her books took off. And um, we sold her America's Working Women in Documentary History in 1976. And that was my first book. And then I realized I really did have to go back to graduate school, and I really wanted to do it in history. And so by then I had married and moved to Boston, and so I went to Boston University in American Studies. So that's how it happened. Now, you had uh, talked about... Uh, uh your expertise is on uh, healthcare, women, race, and public health. Uh, can what are what are some of the courses that you that you teach or have taught? So I got really lucky when I finished. By then, I was still married. I had a five year old kid, and I didn't want to like work seven thousand miles away from my child. And um, I got hired. Really, it was amazing in a half time one year job at Wellesley College, which is an all women's institution um, just outside of Boston. And um, I got hired for half time one year into their women's studies program. So I was Wellesley's first hire in women's studies. Now, I know a lot about women's history by that point. I'd done my dissertation on the history of nursing. But I um, really didn't know anything about women's studies, but I became, as my ex-husband called me, a talented amateur. <laughs> and um, I taught women's studies. And by then, Wellesley decided maybe we should keep the program. And now, you know, almost 40 years later, 40 years later, actually, the, the, it's now a department um, with full tenure lines and a number of different kinds of faculty, but I was the first one. And so I taught introduction to women's studies, but I taught history of medicine. I taught health activism. I taught a course on, during the pandemic, I actually went back and taught a course on the history of epidemics. Um, I taught a course on passing um, on contemporary American women's history and a bunch of other things like that. It was really fabulous. I got really lucky and I got to raise my kid and I had another kid and I got to stay in the Boston area and have a lovely job. So it was really very lucky. Now, what are some of the challenges that you faced during your career journey? Well, first of all, I'm part of that first generation of women academics, you know, large number of women academics. So there was always this issue of, you know, were you really going to stay in the field? Like when I got 
pregnant with my daughter um, when I was in graduate school. I hid the pregnancy for my advisor, and I was applying for money where you could get an extra $500 if you had a um, dependent. And I wrote a phony budget and had him sign off on the phony budget. And then I added, I typed in the $500 after he signed it because I knew that if he thought I was pregnant, he wouldn't, he wouldn't think that I was serious and that I would stay in the field. And, and his wife told me years later that I was right. That was a good thing. I hid it from him. And, you know, even when I got to Wellesley, one of my colleagues in the history department said to me, so, um, you seem to be a good historian. Why do you bother with that women's stuff? I just looked at him and said, you know, been trying to ignore it all my life, but they just won't let me. So there was just sort of the doubts that almost every woman historian of my generation got. And then there were the other things about what did it mean to be a white woman moving on to write about race and racial issues at a time where there were real issues about whether white historians should write African-American history or not. And so I'd say the challenges were both about my feminism, but also by anti-racism and what did it mean to be a white person writing this kind of material and how do you handle that? Since George Floyd, there's been a lot of uh, talk and a, a lot of discussions about education reform. And right now, there are 37 states in this country where there are proposals in the legislation to regulate the teaching of black history. And New Jersey, the state that I'm in, happens to be one of them. And currently, there are seven states where slavery is not even included in their social studies curriculum. And that includes Alaska, Delaware, Iowa, Maine, Montana, Vermont, and Wyoming. And in those same states, uh, civil rights movement is also admitted in the curriculum, along with Oregon. And um, with regards to history, can you tell our listeners about probably one of the, well, not probably, one of the most uh, cruel uh, experiments uh, in the history of this country that was conducted? Uh, about and, yeah. and it's about your book, one of your books, which is called Examining Tuskegee, the Infamous Syphilis Study and Its Legacy. Okay. So what happened was that I, um, I the dissertation book was about the history of nursing. And in the this study, which the people in Tuskegee prefer to be called the U.S. Public Health Service Study of Untreated Syphilis in Tuskegee and Macon County. So between 1932 and 1972, the United States Public Health Service decided to study untreated syphilis in African-American men, and it recruited 623 men in the county, about 399 who had the late stage of the disease, that is, they were supposed to be no longer contagious, and, um, uh, two, and 199 people, who, 201 men who were the control, um, who did not have the disease. And it then followed them for 40 years through different kinds of regimens for treatment of syphilis through the penicillin era when it proved to be the most useful. And the study didn't end until 1972 until um, a, uh, a sexually transmitted infections investigator was so angry about it that he told his girlfriend, who was a newspaper reporter, and it got reported on the Associated Press wire. So since then, which was, my, which was um, in 1972, so 50 years ago, the study was exposed. Um, since then, there have been movies, plays, poems, music, um, you know, lots and lots of articles written about the study, how it happened and why it happened. And I got interested in it mostly because at first, there's an African-American nurse named Eunice Rivers Laurie, who was the go-between the public health service and the men. And... 
in the standard book that had written up to that point about the study called Bad Blood by my friend Jim Jones. He has a whole chapter on Rivers, but he doesn't really explain her enough, I thought. And so I thought, oh, well, that would be interesting. I'm, you know, come out of nursing history, I would write about her. But I, so I went to Tuskegee to look at more information, and there just wasn't enough about her. And so I ended up doing this edited book first called Tuskegee's Truth, which is an edited book of all the different documents, a series of documents about the study from different perspectives. And then I wrote this book, called, as you said, called Examining Tuskegee, which is about um, how the study started, who was involved in doing it, and then how the study continues to reverberate in American culture. Well, I, I know I remember back in the uh, late 1990s, um, Primetime, which is very similar to 2020, did an uh, expose on that, and they had they interviewed one of the doctors that was involved in the experiment, mm-hmm. and um, uh, which is it. It was almost like, oh, by the way, uh, he was very passe about um, the the experiment, and you would think somebody right. would say, you know, be, have, show some type of remorse uh, right. for his involvement, but he didn't. Now, right. usually when somebody discovers something of, of this magnitude or anything, whether it's the Kennedy assassination or the King assassination, or even the Tuskegee experiment, um, what was the response from the government or anyone else um, uh, since you've written these books? Well, so one of the things that happened is exactly about, so around the same time as the primetime story came out, there was a film done by WGBH, uh, the PBS station here in Boston, and it was called Deadly Deception. And it was the, the primetime thing was 15 minutes, but Deadly Deception was an hour, and it was a really good documentary about the study. And like the primetime um, uh, uh, segment, it had several of the physicians who were still around, and they just weren't, it was really shocking. I mean, they really weren't apologetic. You'd think by this point, someone would have said to them, you know, oh, just say, you know, it was a long time ago, it was the South, we thought differently, blah, 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 so sorry, and then just move on. But they didn't do that. And it was really stunning. And so I was at a conference in 94, we watched one of these films, and um, a lovely man named John Fletcher, who was a bioethicist at the University of Virginia, said, you know, it's really outrageous that the United States government has never apologized formally for this. There had been a lawsuit um, that was uh, the attorney for it was a man named Fred Gray, who's a famous civil rights attorney who had been Rosa Parks's attorney in the Montgomery bus boycott. So Fred Gray won a lawsuit for the men and their families and got them some money. But there'd never been a formal apology by this. And at that point, um, Bill Clinton was the president and we so a bunch of us thought well that might be a good time to try to do it so a group of people met in Tuskegee in 1996 and we formed something called the legacy committee and we worked with the black congressional caucus and other groups in washington and we got president clinton to apologize formally in may of 1997 so 25 years ago this past spring um and at that point, there were only six of the men were still alive, and five of them actually came to the White House for the ceremony. It was really moving. And one of the gentlemen, it was 103, and he had never flown before. It was really stunning. And so there was this very moving and important um, apology that Clinton gave in the East Room of the White House. But of course, as they always say, apologies just tell you that I acknowledge something bad happened in the past. It doesn't predict, of course, what you're going to do in the future. 
So some of, one of the things we did was we, we got the government to fund a bioethics center, which we'd hoped would build out a new cadre of African-American bioethicists at Tuskegee, and they've done some of that work um, over the years. And we've just continued to try to speak about the study. And this last weekend, not this past weekend, but two weekends ago, I was in Tuskegee because the Middle Bank Memorial Fund, which is this private foundation in New York that has done public health work for 110 years, paid for uh, what was called, quote-unquote, burial insurance that was part of the bribe of the families to allow their family members in the study to be autopsied because the best way to see the damage that syphilis had done on the men's bodies was to look at the, dish, the tissue and the organs after the man passed away. So in order to induce the families to do that, Millbank helped pay for the burial. And they had never apologized for that. And they started to think about it as part of their own sort of self-examination. And in the end, what happened was we had this major ceremony. I, so they called me and asked me to write a report for them. So I went into their records and I wrote a report about Milbank's role in the study. And then they had a formal apology in Tuskegee to an organization called the Voices of Our Fathers Legacy Foundation, which represents the descendants of the men. Um, in the study, and Milbank is giving them a considerable amount of money for their scholarship fund as kind of reparations. And I just thought, you know, it's a it's a fitting um, way to deal with this study and to continue to really talk about what happened and to tell the truth about it, and then to do what we can to undo what was done. Just last year um, was the hundredth uh, anniversary of the, uh, uh, the the massacre at. Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that brought a lot of people's attention. And a lot of people didn't even know about Black Wall Street, um, both black, whites, brown. Um, and so now we have, you know, 50 years after the Tuskegee um, experiment ended. Um, so what do you see in terms of um, how the uh, the United States or maybe schools can maybe even um, um, use share more information about this because it's it's another uh story that still even though like i said it's 50 years after the end of the experiment that they really don't talk about and i was just um happened to do some research and found out about uh, Millbank um providing reparations what are any any other ideas you think that um should be done yeah, I think um, what, what I've argued, so what happened is as COVID, um, you know, started to explode, journalists in particular kept saying, well, African-American people aren't going for the vaccine or don't believe the information that's coming from the government because of Tuskegee. And so a number of us, um, me included, wrote things that said, look, um, most people don't even know about it, even in the black community. And if it's raised, it's like... Um, it's more like a metaphor. So when you say Tuskegee, what you really mean is racism, structural racism. And so really what happened to you last week in an emergency room is going to shape your experience and your sense of the healthcare system more than some memory of some study that happened a long time ago. And the problem with only focusing on the past is that it's a way for commentators often to say, look, African-American people just think about all this terrible stuff in the past and they aren't really, quote, modern people. And so we think it's really important to I think it's really important, and a number of us do, to really say, look, this happened. Of course it happened, and other terrible things happened. But the real issue is, what are the barriers for care now? And what can the healthcare system do to become, as one of my colleagues puts it, trustworthy? 
rather than a saying that there's mistrust on the part of the African-American community. What can you do to make the system trustworthy so that people aren't so afraid? And there are lots of things that could be done. I mean, we need more community-based care. We need more people of color working in the healthcare system. Um, we need more community involvement in research um, projects so people don't feel exploited. And we need to tell this history, and then we have to think about what are its implications for now. And I would argue that it's important to teach white healthcare providers in particular, I see that as part of my responsibility, why the study happened and why the white doctors, for example, didn't think they were doing anything wrong. Because if you just think of this as something that happened you know, a long time ago in a universe far, far away, then you won't think that you'll make the same mistake. And so I try to help I think when I talk to medical students in particular or to physicians, I try and say, look, let's try to really assume that they thought they were doing the right thing. Why did they think they were doing the right thing? And how do we make sure that we do the right thing at this point in time? You're listening to Career Talk. I'm your host, Ruben Britt, and we're joined today by professor, author, and historian, Dr. Susan Reverby. We're going to hear more from Dr. Reverby in just a few minutes, so stay with us. Welcome back to Career Talk. I'm your host, Ruben Britt, and we're here today with Dr. Susan Reverby. Uh, she's a professor, author, and historian at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. And before the break, we were talking about the Tuskegee experience. We were talking about uh, experiment, and we were also talking about two of the books that you've written. How might somebody uh, purchase a copy of your books? Yeah, they're from both from the University of North Carolina Press, but you can also get them on Amazon. Now, earlier we talked about uh, stories such as the Tuskegee Experiment um, and even Black Wall Street that are not included in history books or other mainstream avenues of communication, such as the state of Mississippi, which finally, in 1995, ratified the 13th Amendment, which uh, which means the which is the abolishment of uh, slavery. And it took them. 130 years just to ratify the 13th Amendment. And um, so I say that because, once again, you were, you were involved in another, another study that involved uh, experiment um, that is not really documented much uh, about. And uh, can you tell us about the story that you conducted regarding the Guatemala STD experiments? Sure. So, I mean, one of the myths about the study in Tuskegee is that the government gave the men syphilis. And that's not true. They did not. They already had the disease and they were supposed to be in the non-contagious stage. Um, so that's what I've been doing. And I spent a lot of time correcting that and explaining it because I actually think it matters because really what it was about more than anything else was the denial of care. So if you think about it, if the people in Tuskegee had had health insurance, for example, they never would have said yes to the study. They did it because they got extra attention and they thought they were getting decent medical care. So if they had been national health insurance in the 30s, nobody would have agreed to the study. So um, anyway, that's why I think the racism in some ways in the study is worse, not because because it's so normative to deny care to people without money. So I was doing the research for this. I was in an archive in Pittsburgh, and I was looking at the papers of a man named John Cutler, who had helped run the study in Tuskegee in the 1950s. And he's one of the doctors on the films that says, oh, we didn't do anything wrong. So I thought, well, maybe there'll be something here that explains what he's talking about. But in fact, what was there, and I opened up the first box, and there were boxes and boxes of material, and it was called inoculation syphilis. 
in Guatemala. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, wait. I just spent a decade of my life telling everybody nobody was infected in Tuskegee. And here's Cutler. He's in Guatemala and he's infecting people. So it turned out that what happened was they were trying to see whether penicillin could be used not just as a cure for syphilis and other STDs, but could also um, stop the disease like if you'd already had unprotected sex and had been exposed to it, could penicillin stop the disease from you know taking hold in your body? So the trouble with an STD, of course, is sexually transmitted. So how do you do research on that? So Cutler is at a research um, unit in um, Staten Island, actually. And I, he's there with a guy named Juan Funes, who's the head of the what was then called Marial Diseases in Guatemala. And I think the guys went out for a beer one night. And Cutler said, you know, we're trying to figure out whether penicillin will do this, but it's an STD. And I think Funes says to him, listen, why don't you come to Guatemala? Because in Guatemala... Sexual work, sex workers can come to the federal prison and have sex with the prisoners, and it's legal. So mm. we could find sex workers with STDs, or we could give them an STD, and we could send them into the prison, and then we could study whether the penicillin worked. So Cutler thinks this is a terrific idea. They write a proposal. It gets funded by the National Institutes of Health, and Cutler and his team march down to Guatemala in 1946, and they start sending on U.S. taxpayer dollars, mind you. I mean, you couldn't make this up. It's like unbelievable. <laughs> they pay sex workers to go into the prison and have sex with the men. They bribe the men with alcohol and cigarettes, but the guys don't like the blood draws. So they stopped doing it there and they can't seem to get everybody to be infected. So then they moved on to a, to an army barracks. They also did it in a mental hospital mm. um, and they infected people with Shankroyd, with uh, it's another STD, with syphilis and with gonorrhea. And the study went on for two years. They weren't able to get that many people infected, frankly. And by then, penicillin was proving so effective that the United States government decided they didn't want to spend any money figuring this part out. They would just cure people if they got sick, so color got brought home. Um, but nobody knew about the study. Now, the study in Tuskegee had 13 articles published in major journals. People did know about it. But the one in Guatemala, nobody had ever heard about and I was just completely stunned by this. So I wrote it up, and I by then I had gotten to know a man named David Spencer, who had been the director of the CDC during the period that Tuskegee um, ended. And so I sent him a copy of the paper, and I said, could you just read this to make sure the medicine, you know, I didn't make any mistakes. And he called me up, and he said, look, when this comes out, you know, CDC is going to look terrible, because by then CDC is head of the public health service. And I said, um, oh, nobody's going to read this going to be an obscure history journal. He said, no, no, in the age of the internet, everybody reads everything. So long story short, my paper went up the chain of command in CDC, then it went to NIH, then it went to the White House Domestic Policy Council during the Obama administration. So in October of 2010, both Hillary Clinton and the Secretary of State and Kathleen Sebelius and the head of the Health and Human Services apologized formally for the study to the Guatemalans and to the Guatemalan government. And Obama called the president of Guatemala, and then the president's um, uh, bioethics commission did a year-long report to back up what I had written and to formalize our information about the study. And that's available from the government bioethics. Uh, I think it's bioethics.gov, and you can get the report. But it kind of disappeared. I mean, it was like big front-page news. I think I talked to every newspaper or media outlet all over the world, from the Chinese to Al Jazeera. Mm -hmm. um, in the first few days, and then it just kind of disappeared. 
you know, I mean, bioethicists know about it, and obviously people in the Guatemalan American community know about it, but mostly it just disappeared. Now, when I go back to the Tuskegee experiment, um, what caused the, the federal government to focus in on Tuskegee? Um, were, there, were there other places where the, uh, the males uh, were infected with uh, syphilis, or why was it Tuskegee? Or why couldn't it have been somewhere else? Right, right. It could have been. And in fact, in, if you may not remember this, but in the primetime video, um, uh, Sid Olansky, who's the physician who's majorly featured in that, and some, the reporter asked Olansky, well, why did you do it on African men in Macon County and Alabama? And Olansky said, well, if we'd seen this much disease in West Virginia hillbillies, we would have done it there. Um, so part of it was there was a, a racist assumption, absolutely incorrect, that African-Americans had more sexually transmitted diseases than white people. And part of the problem is, of course, is how the reporting happens. If you're poor, you go to a public health clinic, your STD gets reported. If you're middle class and you go to your white doctor, it's supposed to be reported. But of course, if it's a private physician, often they didn't report. So the numbers are meaningless. We don't really know. It's a little bit like with COVID, right? We know that people went to labs, but all of us who tested and got positive diseases at home never got reported. So we don't really know the numbers accurately. So in any event, that's, um, there was an assumption that, that, that it was sexually transmitted um, and there was more sexuality, of course, in the black community. That was the assumption. It was assumed that the disease um, was different in blacks and whites. It was assumed white people got the neurological complications of the disease and black people got the cardiovascular ones, which was also not true. And so that's why they were interested. And they had already done a study previously, which there was treatment in six counties in the rural South. And Macon County was picked because there had been a high outbreak number there in one small corner of the county. And because there was a black hospital at Tuskegee Institute, now Tuskegee University, where the x-rays and then the autopsies could be done. So that's why. Now, are there any other new projects uh, that you have planned in the future or articles well, or books? Finished, yeah, I just finished. Well, I finished two things. So I finished the Millbank report, which you can um, get if you go to the Millbank Memorial Fund um, website. The whole report is there. And it's also on, I think, the Voices of Fathers Legacy Foundation um, website also has the report. And then the book I just finished two years ago is called Co-Conspirator for Justice. The Revolutionary Life of Dr. Alan Berkman, and it's a biography of an American physician who died in 2009 who helped form an organization that fought successfully to get uh, antiretrovirals to cure HIV into the global south by changing U.S. government policy. But before that, he had actually been a political prisoner of the United States and a bomber. So he was somebody who actually bombed the U.S. Senate. Um, And he did eight years of very, very hard time in prison, along with other people in his group. They were doing support for the Black Liberation Army. Um, so it's an amazing story of this, you know, small town guy from upstate New York who wasn't political in, in college or high school, who becomes political in medical school and then goes on to become a bomber and then a, a, a major leader in public health internationally. And I grew up with him in this little town. So I think it's an interesting story about someone who tried to figure out what it meant to be as a white you know, anti-racist, what it meant to be um, a co-conspirator and a real ally in the struggle against racism, both in the United States and then globally. So I think it's a fascinating story, and it comes back to my interest in 
trying to think about how white people can be anti-racist and what it means to devote your life to that. And Alan's story is an example of one way to do that. Thank you. And now the career tip of the day, developing networking (laughs) skills. Always keep copies of your resume and networking cards on hand. You never know who you're going to meet and where. Remember that every word counts no matter where you are. Choose your words wisely because recruiters listen to everything that you say. I would like to thank my guest, Dr. Susan Retherby, professor, author, and historian at Wellesley College for being on the show. You've been listening to Career Talk. I'm your host, Ruben Britt. Until next time, stay positive. And remember, success does not come to you. You go to it. You've been listening to Career Talk, a monthly program featuring information on career and academic planning, sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. Tune in on the first Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. for another edition of Career Talk, only on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM.